Hi, I'm Shakura Saida, and I'm sitting here with Mako Funasaka. And the reason I'm sitting here is because I've known Mako for many, many years, and he interviews just about everybody, but I realize we don't know him. And I always have the best talks with him and the best conversations. So I thought, why don't we take this opportunity to introduce him to the world? and explain to people exactly who he is and why he does what he does. So I, just I wish I knew that. <laughs> so I just basically took over his show and he doesn't know what I'm going to ask. And I might not even know what I ask, but hi, Mako. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Oh, no, please. Thank you for coming to your home <laughs> on your couches. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. So tell me... Just the basics first, because I actually don't know where you were born. I don't know what your influences were growing up and how you got into a lot of music production, because you do do a lot of the music stuff in the city. I was born in Montreal. My dad was working for a company called Mitsui, so he was transferred to Montreal, <clears throat> and he established the head office there. We lived there for four years, mm -hmm. moved back to Japan, moved all over Japan for another four years. I lived in Hong Kong for four years, and then I moved here when I was 12, and I've been in Toronto since then, since 1971. Wow, so you, do you speak French or Japanese? <laughs> Not at all? <laughs> I speak very little Japanese. Very little And Japanese. the only person I talk to is my mom. So my, my Japanese, I only went to grade three mm -hmm. in Japanese. So see spot run, that's pretty well where I'm at. And I, haven't, I just don't use it, so I'm, my Japanese is really bad. Wow. And what memories do you have from back then? What memories? From, like, I don't have much memories from Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, and in Japan, you know, that's where my first love was baseball. And that's where I was introduced to the game of baseball. And I have oh. memories about baseball. Really? And was it, were you watching it on television or mm -hmm. you watching it live? Um, we went to a few games live, but it was mainly watching on t TV or back then I was listening to it on radio. And in Japan, they had this weird thing where they would play the first few innings. Yeah. And then at one point or another, when it was like 10 o'clock, it would just cut off and you have to go to the radio and listen to the rest of the game. Uh oh. And I okay. remember that. Okay. So did you think you were going to be a baseball player growing up? <laughs> was that your thing? That was my first love. I, whether I ever thought that I could make it was, no, I, d I didn't think so. But I did play for um, a little league team like the Hong Kong Little League team national team oh. and played against the um the Taiwanese team and we got our asses whooped but it was you know but I was I love baseball baseball really? was my life yeah and do you still watch baseball games now mm -hmm. are you a big Blue Jays fan or I am and I was just at the game on Saturday like I am yeah I'm very much a I'm probably more of a Blue Jays fan than a baseball fan now but I love the game like I, I it's the only game that I feel that I know Really? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I like hockey, I like football, but I don't think I know it intimately. Whereas baseball, there's still things that I watch and I don't, I mean, I'm surprised by, but most rules I know and I, I can understand. Well, so you'd be the person to go to a baseball game with because you really, you know, you know when to yell at the umpire, <laughs> when to throw your popcorn at somebody. Well, maybe. I don't, I, I don't yeah. say I'm an expert. It's just, the, it's just the game that I feel most comfortable with, but that doesn't mean that I'm an expert or anything. Like wow. That. That's good to know. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, well. I don't know if anyone knew that. And what about your <laughs> but, love of music? But nobody really cares. <laughs> well, I think, you know what, this is the thing. It's really interesting because when you're being interviewed by someone, a lot of times they know so many things about you. Mm -hmm. 
but you don't get an opportunity to know anything about them. That's true. And, and I think that um, it opens an entirely different door. You know, so now our interviews together are going to be so much deeper, Marco. You know, <laughs> we're going to be talking, talking about baseball. Yeah, stats. we're going to be talking about baseball stats. You know, it's going to be. Really but it's cool. it's also interesting that you, you know sometimes I'm quite aware of the fact that I don't have to reveal much. Yes. You know, so very few people know much about me, and and I'm totally fine with that because I just I don't think I'm that interesting. But. Yeah, we're going to get into that that whole you know you don't have to reveal and other people reveal their souls. But I want to ask, what about music? When did you start becoming interested in music, and what type of music was it first? What genre? Um, so when I was living in Hong Kong, I was in there for grade three to six. Um, I think there are three major influences on music and how I got introduced. One was AM radio, and I used to listen to, like in grade six, I discovered music. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was because of the Woodstock movie, which my parents took me to, and that kind of changed my life, because all of a sudden I thought, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. And then um, I, I discovered Top 40 AM radio, so they used to have, um, broadcast an American Top 40 show in Hong Kong once a week, and I would listen to that. And my brother's record collection, so... One of the first bands that I really loved was a band called MC5, and I would have never discovered MC5 had my brother not brought home that album. And, you know, there's a lot of, I listened to that a lot. I listened to The Who. I listened to Santana. Um, as soon as I discovered it, it was just like, wow, this is this A is whole so new cool. world. Yeah. And I just, you know, now my baseball career is coming to an end. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I at the ripe age of 12... And then the next love was music. And then in grade nine, I got a set of drums and I started playing really poorly. And by grade 12, <laughs> I was done, <laughs> done with that. But it was, it was a great experience yeah. just to be in the basement practice and to understand discovering music and going through that. And, you know, I relate to that as, you know, a starting point for a lot of my interviews. I wound up not following through, and, and yet I get to interview these musicians who made it a career who are... But you are a musician. How you interview, I think, uh, is people feel as though you understand music. And so this explains it, you know, because you were practicing drums and you were listening to a lot of music. How you approach the music is always from a very um, perceptive point of view. I think I'm a fan more than a musician. You know what I mean? But you, when we, you and you and I speak about what I've done on stage and, and you're listening back to something I played, a lot of things, a lot of the comments that you make are often very perceptive and they're more than a normal fan would know. Mm -hmm. You know, you're very versed in music and very aware of what's going on stage and, and what's happening musically. I mean, yeah. you know, doing, I've been doing this for 15, 16 years now. Um, on the positive, I've had opportunities to be in the studio with somebody like you and see the inner workings of a recording. I've been... You know, I've shot footage from the side of the stage or been backstage. and um, So you get to see music from a different perspective and, and more intimately and, and in a way that most fans don't. And that's, that's the positive, and I love that. Um, the negative is that once you're sitting on stage with an orchestra or if you're sitting side stage when Fabulous Thunderbirds are playing at a festival or whatever, all of a sudden, none of the seats up front are that good anymore. They're, yeah, it's a completely different experience. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. when you pay for it, and you pay a lot of money to go see a concert, and you're like second row from the very back of the stadium, you think, well, I'm not enjoying this as much. So it's yeah. kind of taken me away from 
going to see a lot of live shows. I understand that completely. You become much more critical of what you're seeing as well. Maybe, yeah, yeah. As well. I, I've become really, um, it takes a really great musician and a really great show to take me, to bring me into the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and to make me forget that I'm not a musician and, and I don't do this. Um, Kathleen Battle did it for me a couple weeks ago. Oh, what, what was this? It was at Roy Thompson Hall and um, she was playing um, spirituals. Mm-hmm. She was singing Negro spirituals and I forgot that I was a musician because she was so good. All I wanted to do was sit and listen to her. I could have listened to her for years. Oh, that's great. Like, years. I feel sometimes jaded by by this and, and you know, it's not, I, and you have to understand that I, for like 10 years or whatever, I spent a lot of time in bars and trying to document blues and, and maybe it was six years, but spending many weekends coming home at two o'clock in the morning, just trying to learn blues and seeing as many musicians as possible. And then as you get older, you think, okay, if I stay up till two, I don't, I can't sleep in. Yeah. And then my whole weekend the is shot. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you yeah. feel it for days. Yeah. So it's part of being old, I guess. But. Yeah. Not that I would know what being old is. No, of course you wouldn't. Like, you but know, I'm, I'm just only, telling you this is my, this something is, you might oh, yeah. happen in, years, in many years to come. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the warning. Ed. No problem. Now, okay, so you go into loving music, start playing the drums. Where does the switch happen for you where you decide to... What happened from, say, 17 onwards that started you interested in speaking to people about music? And, it's way past that. I, I had a career... In the retail business, I, I worked there for 19 years, the first 16 in the IT world. Um, no, before that, I should say that my dad gave me a video camera as a gift, and all of a sudden, I started editing horrible movies, <laughs> mainly movies? family movies, Okay, and yeah. then I would set music to them, and I just loved that process of putting music to visual images. And how old were you then? Oof, I'm like 35 or something. Okay. Um, so I, I loved music all throughout, but never really thought about it. I was busy doing, working, working, yeah. and um, and then I found this hobby, which was to start editing uh, videos of footage that I shot, and I really liked it. And luckily, um, the company I was working for gave me the opportunity to to become the manager of their video television department. Mm-hmm. So I spent three years doing like horrible, horrible, horrible corporate videos and um but it was a great great uh, experience and then one day I was called in after after the most perfect day where we did four live town hall meetings with the CEO to the four different regions um the next working day which was the Monday I came in and they said well we don't need you anymore oh and so luckily they said you know we'll give you the option of going back to your IT job or you can take a severance package and I went back to the IT job with the understanding that I would have six months to decide whether I could stay or not. Yes. And then I did, but realized quickly that whatever dedication I had for the company, I no longer felt, and I needed to find something else, which was just totally unlike me, because I think throughout my whole life, I always played it safe, and you know, I just did what I thought would be the right thing to do. Yeah. And then I started looking, and I started listening to music, and I started listening to the blues, and then the, the Harborfront Blues Festival was happening. So I thought I would get my friend with a camera and we would go down and interview four people. Yes. Um, the first was John Jackson, who is a North Carolina Piedmont blues guitarist. Um, David Gogo, Donnie Walsh, and a, a person named Johnny Laws. 
And the moment I met John Jackson, I thought, oh my God, he's from a totally different time, from a totally different place that I knew nothing about. And he just blew me away. And I interviewed him, like a camera, <laughs> the batteries ran out and I only got like 10 minutes of the interview of that. But it was at that moment I thought, this is what I need to do. I need to document the blues. Wow. And so I went back and I told my wife that I said, I think I want to document the blues with television. I want to spend a year on it. What do you think? And for reasons that I have no idea, she said, okay. And I'm sure she just thought, okay, he's got a year and a half of severance. <laughs> Give him a year. He'll shut up and then he'll you know, get a real job. And then, um, But she put up with it. And then in two years, so there was, it, it wasn't easy, but uh, two years later, I managed to sell a show to Bravo TV. And so I did show, sold six episodes or four episodes. And then, you know, three years later, I'd done 39 episodes of Talking Blues. Wow. That's how it started. Wow. And do you feel like you understand where the blues came from, that whole history now? Do you feel like you have a clear understanding of it now? I think I have... Um, I have an understanding, but I don't know if it's, I don't know how to say this. I think there's the blues that you see that's changed drastically over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, what my idea of blues was 15 years ago to what it is today is completely different. Yeah. And that's not to say it's right or wrong, but you know, you look for answers and, and I, do, I always wonder how you romanticize, like it's an easy thing to romanticize and... But, you know, if I interview people today, it's not the same as interviewing Gatemouth Brown, Hubert Sumlin, you know, all the greats who, were, who came from the Delta. And I think there's a big difference between that. And I'm not sure if I have a great grasp of what that really is. You know, I know <clears throat> what it is now, but I'm not sure if I can totally understand. You know, I understand in theory where it came from, but to have the true meaning of what Snooky Pryor went through or whatever. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I've talk to them and have some image of that but it's still a very distant concept for me I, I understand that it's a distant concept for me too and I think that was a really important shift for me to make mm -hmm. as a artist to understand that no matter what I sing in terms of blues it's not going to be anything like what any of the artists that I love sang and once I accepted that and accepted where I came from, it, it changed musically, and it's still changing me musically. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, Bobby Rush standing outside of what is now the Blues Hall of Fame in Memphis and speaking about being, um, being a young man and having to play behind the curtain mm -hmm. because they wanted to hear the music and didn't want to see their faces. And this feeling of overwhelming sadness came over me. I couldn't understand how this man was still able to play music and not be bitter about it. I know. You know, when you've been faced with that, yeah, we'll listen to you, but we don't want to see you, you know. And yet he was completely kind and generous and open and, and, and smart and wise. And, and you can't put a, a, you really can't conceptualize that. Mm-hmm that thing it, it just is you know but it's really good that you have it documented so that other people can listen to it and learn from it yeah I think it's I don't know I think I always wish that I, I spent some time down south you know, on the Chitlin circuit and documented that but I, I'm not even sure if 
If it still exists. If it's well, I think it still exists, but I'm not sure as an Asian guy who is so detached from that reality really gets it. You know, you know it's a really funny thing that you say that because I have to say, you know, coming from Toronto where we really are multicultural, mm-hmm. whether we're the most multicultural place in the world or not, when you go down to the states, I'm very aware of being black. Mm-hmm. Very, very aware. And I'm very aware when I'm in mixed company. If I'm with someone who's not black, whether they be white or Asian or whatever. Right. And it's interesting going to places black-owned places or places that are frequented by a lot of African-Americans with someone who isn't African-American. Because all of a sudden, I see it through their eyes. And it's almost like I become a spectator as opposed to a participant. Hmm. Whereas if if I was there with people who were of color, I would automatically become a participant. And, and I remember going to um, uh, an after-hours bar in Memphis, and we had one person who wasn't of color, and we literally had to shrug off the, the uh, what do you call it, the spectator right. coat and just relax into it. Because I'm sure the people who were sitting there who were regulars must have felt like we were coming in to check them out and look at them and stuff like that. And we had to just let them know that we weren't there to, to take stock of their lives, but, but rather to celebrate with them, mm-hmm. you know, or to just be part of their day. But it, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because I don't know how to, I don't know if any of us really get it. No. And I know? just, I mean, I think it's difficult. It's like going to travel when you spend a week or five days in Barcelona or whatever. Like, do you really understand that culture by being there and doing the touristy things or whatever? And in some ways, you know, I, I've had 15 years of interviewing musicians, and but that's the whole scope of different experiences, and I'm not sure if I've really worked that out. I mean, I understand it, and my job is not necessarily to figure it all out. I just, I always think of my job as just interviewing people and, and getting their words to explain what their lives were like yeah. and not you know, explain the, the true definition of the blues across the board, because I don't, I think it's different from, for everybody. I think so, right. Who's your favorite interview so far that you've done? Um, Name your top three. <laughs> I, that's a tough one. I, you know, I've been, I've probably done like close to 500 interviews. Wow. And um, to be honest, there have been maybe a handful of really bad interviews Yes. Um, where, you know, there's one example where I had to just cut it out off after seven minutes because I just thought I'm going nowhere with this. And it was a real big disappointment because he was, he's a true legend in the blues. But other than that, most of my interviews have been pretty, pretty decent, you know, and, and um, the difference is sometimes people open up and they reveal themselves and they share who they are. Sometimes you just get the, the, you know, regular answers that you would expect. And so yeah. that's the difference. But I've really had very few bad experiences and I've had some incredible experiences. Okay, most memorable then. There are few. Uh, you know, I just did an interview with Sonny Landreth um, a couple of weeks ago and, and we were talking about the first interview I did with him where um, where I had probably, I don't know what it was about that show, but when I was shooting it, I just felt like I knew exactly what he was going to do next. And it was just this... And it was like the most amazing performance, and I felt like I ca- I got to capture it. I knew, 
you know, things were going to happen and I knew where to put the camera and everything was amazing. And then afterwards we went for an interview and <clears throat> he brought with him Robert Lockwood Jr. And he was just sitting there and it was just, you know, and, and so I was on my best behavior and I thought that was a special interview. I did an interview with Chris Whitley, who he was a musical hero of mine. I loved his first album and um, he was really uncomfortable in the very beginning of the interview and half like 90 minutes into it, like I could see through his body language that he he enjoyed the experience and it was just such an amazing experience. Kevmo was another one where at the end he said, you should do this for a living. And, and I said, <laughs> well, I kind of do. <laughs> so there's been a lot of hurt. You know, I could just go on. Hubert Sumlin was another one. Uh, what's the best festival that you've had the chance to go to or one of your favorites? There's so many great festivals out there. Just, there yeah, were, okay. You know. Just say it. Go ahead. Just do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then give a reason why. So well, I can tell you. That. So there's a festival called the Natadan Blues Festival, run by my friend Yo Stein. Yo Stein, yes. yes. Um, he hired me to, to do interviews there. So I have great memories. They used to have a hotel at the top of the hill. And all the musicians would stay stay there. So it would be... Myself, my wife, and um, Art Topaldi and his wife, and everybody else, not everybody, but most of the people who were staying at the hotel were musicians. And that could be Mel Brown, uh, Little Milton, you know, so you could just look around and you're basically having breakfast with the who's a who of blues. They're there for three days sometimes, and they're relaxed. So it's just a great environment to, to interview people. The legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise. Is another one where you just you know it's it's great because people are just in a great mood. The Blues Music Awards is another one. So when you when you find an an atmosphere where <clears throat> everybody is relaxed and happy and it's the best place to do an interview. So you like the community idea mm-hmm. because it works for you because it relaxes people. Well, it's hard to you know open. it's hard to say can I do an interview with you twenty minutes before you go on stage? Yeah. And that's, it's rare that you get a great interview because their head is somewhere else. Um, it's also difficult to do an interview after the show because yes, their head is somewhere else. So, <laughs> so if you can find a situation where they're comfortable and relaxed, it's, it's the best. And, I, you know, and that's, that's hard. And, and, you know, over the years, Toronto has gotten fewer and fewer blues musicians traveling through. So that's been difficult. And, and, and you know, the goal of this podcast was not even though it's called Talking Blues, not just to do blues, it's to expand and, and interview jazz musicians and classical musicians and whatever. And, and um, so I'm working on that, and that thrills me. So who is there that you want to interview that you haven't yet? Oh, there's so many people. Yeah, yeah, like who? Well, maybe Staples, Staples would be one. Oh, um, yeah. There's many. I still get a lot of rejections, so probably I get half the interviews that I make requests for. And sometimes they just go, you know, I know I'm not going to get this person, but I'm going to try. And most of the times I won't even get a response. But it's it's what I love to do. You know, I don't know how to explain who, who it is that I am and why I do this, except that I know that when I'm sitting there interviewing people, and for most part I'm interviewing people that I respect. Like, I, you know, people aren't calling me and saying, can you do an interview mm-hmm. with me? It's people who I want to go out of my way to meet and interview. And so... I appreciate every single interview that I get. I just think I'm so lucky to be able to do that and talk to people about their lives. And when they open up to me, it's, it's incredible. Well, I think that's the thing that 
people should know about you is that you have this you're like the pipe piper of interviews you know because you can get people to open up and and relax and i think if there was a way of letting more people know that you are really great at it and the way that you allow us to express ourselves and um and be seen is no, it's, it's hard because you know. I don't really consider myself great at it. I mean, part of the reason why I do this is because I want to get better at it. So the more interviews that I do, hopefully it will get better. But, I, you know, I, I've had interviews which weren't good, and I always wonder, could I have done something different to make it better? And I just, well, I But know. I think everybody does, and I think that's mm-hmm. the mark of somebody who really, you know, is, is working a good life. They're always trying to get better. But, I mean, I don't really want you to get much better because then I won't be able to afford you. <laughs> so I think is where you're at now is really good. And, and don't think about getting better. Just stay where you are, you know. I think that'll work for us. <laughs> now, I'm really interested in this difference between American blues and Canadian blues. And you've inter- what I'm saying is you've interviewed both sides. Of, right. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know if there's a big difference at this the second, third fourth generation of blues players do you know what I mean like I just think that Donnie Walsh who who's who played in the 60s and who was influenced by James Cotton and Muddy Waters and whoever I mean I don't know if he's any different than any musician in Chicago who was watching Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf um, I think Toronto has a lot of history in the blues because so many of the Chicago musicians used to come up here for weeks at a time and play here so you know people would see them at the colonial or whatever um so i don't know if there is a difference i mean i think you know i think people have that opinion that maybe canadian blues is a little more rougher or tougher or whatever i I, and i can't really say i just think that there's good blues and not so good blues and some are better and i don't know if it's i mean i you know i i don't know once you get to the european side there's some great european musicians as well so it's just like i think it's there everywhere i don't know if it's still the same as what really exists in Mississippi. Like, I, I just, I can't, you know. I understand that, yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah, I, I find out when I go down to the IBCs, you know, you have the traditional blues players, mm-hmm. the older men. I haven't seen a lot of the older women, but the older men playing. And then you have these young kids, you know, who mm-hmm. come from somewhere up north, and, and they're playing all the traditional music. What's interesting is the older guys never get far in the competition. Sometimes they'll make it to the semifinals, mm-hmm. but it's rare. Whereas the younger kids tend to get very far, and people are raving about them. Oh, my God, they're so great. And I sit there thinking, but they're just doing what these men have been playing their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Why is what they're doing so much more amazing? Is it because you know it's not what they grew up playing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and from my point of view, when you go to Europe... Who's has, who has a better chance of being in Europe? And I think the older guys do because in Europe, they want to hear that authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to hear someone who's learned it from the records. They want to hear someone who's learned it from, you know, the juke joint or from the from the bar down the street. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that we have a lot of that left anymore. I mean, what worries me is that, you know, nothing against the great guitar players, but sometimes it's become more about the solo than about the song. And to me, and this is, you know, everything is a, a subjective thing and, and what I like doesn't mean that it's right or wrong or whatever. But 
when I think of the blues, I think of chess records. I think about those three-minute songs, mm-hmm. which are songs, and you have this short guitar solo or a sax solo or whatever, um, and that's it. But it's about the song. And when, when, when I hear just it being about the guitar solo and, and not about the song... It's, you know, not that it's wrong, because if I could play the guitar like that, I think I probably would as well. <laughs> but I think it just takes away from something. And I just noticed that, you know, a lot of festivals I go to, it's a lot about the guitar solo. It's a lot of noodling going yeah. on. A lot of noodling, a lot of wanking going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. I I, I love guitar. I, I live for a great guitar solo. Mm-hmm. But I, I find that what we're missing these days is... is is how the music fits together, how the instruments, how the vocals, everything fits together. And I would love to see more of that. And I think you're right in terms of three-minute songs. I think when you're going to festivals, though, they're trying to lengthen the songs mm-hmm. as well because it's festivals and you have 60 minutes to sometimes 90 minutes of stage time right. to, to fill. You know, um, So I think that has something to do with it. And but I think people love the guitar solo. I think they do, but I, I've also watched a lot of people you know, turn away when the guitar solos are the same thing all mm-hmm. the time or, you know, or or they're not playing to the audience. Right. Like my pet peeve are, are musicians who, you know, or or singers who could be in their living room, you know. Right. And that's only my pet peeve. It doesn't make it right or wrong, but I'm one that if you're on a stage, then be on a stage, mm-hmm. you know, and play to the people. But, For sure. But yeah, some people do like the, you're right, they do like the noodling. What do you want to be when you grow up, Marco? Um, you know, I, I besides hate... a cat master <laughs> with like 10, 20 cats running around doing tricks. Um, <laughs> I'm one of the lucky ones that I just feel like I, I'm doing what I really love to do. I'm I'm an editor for a great um, production company called Riddle Films, who do really interesting work, and um, it you know it's a challenge for me to get better all the time, but it it's. Like, I feel so lucky to be working with them. Um, the fact that, you know, I'm doing a podcast is, you know, to me, I get to talk to people that I want to talk to. I, I just feel I'm really lucky. I just, you know, this, I just, if I could keep doing what I'm doing, I'm really fortunate to do what I do and to meet the people and to work with the people I get to work with. It's, it's I'm pretty lucky. Oh, where do you want to go in the world? Is there any place you would like to visit? Oh, tons of places, and and over the last few years, um, we've been traveling a bit. But yeah, I mean, I I find travel stressful, but I love travel. So um, you find the traveling itself stressful, but you love getting there. Is that it? Yes. Well, no, I just I, I find the whole process stressful, but I, I just you know I I don't like planes, so it makes it makes flying <laughs> difficult. Um, but I love. I mean, I when I the other passion I had when I was really young was I wanted to be a pilot. Oh. Um, and I used to love planes and airlines and stuff. Um, that passion is totally gone now. Why? What I happened? just don't. You know, it's just, just being on spending too much time on planes and in airports and delays and. Yeah, it's become tedious, right? Yeah, like so. I find that I mean, you know, and travel is one of those places where you see the different class systems. Yes, you do. You know, so that if you can travel in first or premium business class or whatever, then then life is a lot easier than being at the last row of the tiny plane. That yeah, because they pack us in now. Yeah, so for somebody who's not comfortable with space and you know who who gets stuck at the very end of the plane, it's it can be tough. 
I mean, I, I'm very conscious about, you know, wherever we go, booking a flight that's going to be accommodating. I always try to find a bigger plane than a smaller plane, whatever. But I shouldn't let you help me with my travel then, because <laughs> I never know what kind of plane we're on. And then I have this big bag and I got to try and stuff it in the overhead. But it's part of the traveling routine. I mean, it's part of the booking routine for us yeah. is just to know. And also timing. Like, you know, I, I don't like getting up at four o'clock in the morning to catch a flight. Anyway, yeah. so we do, we do a lot of that. Well, I'm sure you do, and I, there are times when you can't help it. But I think you know, if I'm traveling for leisure, then I try to make it as simple as possible, which is difficult. But you do, and but I, I love traveling, and I, I love you know when I go to different places, and sometimes you know I'm lucky that I go to certain places on a regular basis, and I know people there, and I get I get this feeling. I, you know, there's certain restaurants in New York that I go to more so than restaurants in Toronto. I think that's cool. Um, travel's fun. Yeah, it is. So what's next for you work-wise? Work-wise, one of the projects we're working on right now um, is for the McMichael Museum. And it's basically seven Canadian guitar makers are creating uh, a guitar each inspired by the group of seven artists. So we're documenting that process. And, and that's like a year-long project, which has been an amazing experience we're also doing some work probably with the ottawa chamber festival in classical music which is amazing so those two are the ones that we're working towards in the summer what is it that makes you say this is somebody i want to interview because i'm sure you also have a lot of people coming up to you go oh yeah you interview people how about interviewing me so what is it that makes you go that's somebody whose story i think people would be interested in i it just comes to do i want to know them you know, and there are people that I've interviewed many times already, and some people I've interviewed for the podcast that I just find that I enjoy talking to all the time. Tommy Castro, yourself, um, there are other musicians. Funny. Yeah, Tommy's a great guy. Yeah. Um, there are other people who I've interviewed a number of times, and I think, well, I, I don't really need to interview them anymore because I don't think I can get them to say anything new, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. So um, it's really it comes down to who would you like to meet and and get to know and that's that's what it comes down. there are times when somebody will suggest somebody to me and say this guy's really interesting you should talk to him then I'm, I'm open to it and I'll do research but it really comes down to who are the people I would love to meet in my life and you know I've been really really lucky like when I look at the list of people I've interviewed for the TV series or just for this podcast I just think god I'm so lucky you know it's- how would you want to be remembered you know, 100 years from now, when they're looking at all of your footage through their <laughs> special computer chips that everything's been transferred onto, <sighs> you know, what do you want people to think about you or say about you? How do you want to be remembered? That's a tough one. I never really thought about that. I'm, and uh, just somebody who really enjoyed what he did, you know, and who was curious and who loved to talk to people. I mean, I think I love editing. I love, I don't shoot as much, but I love, I used to love shooting video footage. Um, and I can get lost in both of those, but the truth is that to do an interview with somebody and to connect with somebody, and you know, there's nothing like that feeling for me when when I leave the interview and think I just nailed that. You know, you just get this feeling, and I presume it's like you being on stage and having a really amazing performance. That's how I feel when I get a great interview. Yeah. 
I, I think I feel that way until I get home and I see a YouTube of it and I see all the things that went wrong and I go, really? I thought that was finally a good one. So I, I have very few good performances Well, that's anymore. the thing, though. I mean, I find it interesting that, you know, it's you could get you could watch the most amazing performance and shoot it and on video it's never the same. Yeah. I mean, the rare time you will actually get something that is good, but putting anything to video is never as good as being live, being there yeah. live. I agree. Last question. Mm-hmm. If you could go back and I don't want to be trite and say go back and speak to young Mako, but if you could go back and change one thing, one thing only in your life. Would you? And what would it be? Yikes. Um, you know, as somebody who documented the blues, I always regret the fact that I didn't start doing this earlier, that I didn't talk to some of the greats, like the Muddy Waters or the Howlin' Wolf. But that would have been many, many years ago. And I don't think I was, I don't think I would have been ready for it. So I don't know if that's realistic. But I think that's one thing that you just think, you realize very quickly that when you start pointing cameras, uh, cameras at people, that... Um, you document them for life and sometimes it might be the only record that they have and I don't I don't think I realized the power of that that how how important it is to just capture somebody's life and you know you can interview somebody and say what's your latest album and what what's it mean to you that's one thing but you know to say you know where did you come from and what did this mean to you and you know tell me about your life and to document their life I just think it's an amazing thing to do. So I, I regret not getting to certain people, but I feel really lucky that I've been able to talk to the people that I've talked to. I don't know if that answered your question. It but. did. It did. And I appreciate you talking to me all the time, every single time we talk. And thanks for sharing yourself. I know this isn't where you normally would like to be. You'd like to be on this side of the couch. <laughs> Actually, you're always on that couch. But, but I'm but. thinking that, you know, if this has worked out well. So next week, I'm going to have some other musician interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fabulous. <laughs> so what do you want to know about The many sides of Mako. <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.